0: We'll open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Leviticus, chapter 16 this morning. Leviticus, chapter 16. Now, if you were with us last week and you read ahead, your bar was very low for a satisfying sermon. All we had to do was make some sense out of it. But I've been talking about Leviticus 16 for a little while now, and for good reason, as it is the centerpiece of the whole book. And so perhaps your expectations are quite high. This may be a chapter as well that you are familiar with. A number of years ago, that movie, The Passion of the Christ, came out. I believe it opened up with Jesus' prayer in the garden and proceeded through his sufferings as recorded for us in the gospel, there at the end of his life, culminating in his death and resurrection. And I remember one observation that was made, if I didn't read it, it was from a friend who was wondering what the point of the cross was, because it wasn't necessarily plain from the movie. And that's a good question. Even if you know Jesus is doing that for us and it has something to do with sin, nevertheless, the cross is an event that takes place in the middle of a story there is a whole plot that is unfolding that leads us to the cross, without which it really doesn't make much sense. Oh, the cross can be explained in simple terms, but there is a lot that goes in to the cross to make good sense of it. And so today we are in a passage tucked away in our Old Testament early part of the Bible, but this is one of the chapters that reveals to us A dimension to the cross that may not be plain to us in watching it unfold. Let's read together Leviticus chapter 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark. So that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place. With a bull from the herd for a sin offering. And a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat. And shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And shall tie the linen sash around his waist. And wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water. And then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Now Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel." And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fair, fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil, and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat, and on the east side, Uh, And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood, which with his finger seven times, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat. Thus, he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. So he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around and he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it. With his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from uncleanness of the people of Israel, and when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat and the and Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions all their sins, and he shall put them. On the head of the goat, and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting, and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in the holy place, and put on his garments, and come out. And offer his burnt offering, and the burnt offering of the people, and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar, and he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering, and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp, their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire and he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward he may come into the camp. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the seventh day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns with you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean. Uh, before the Lord from all your sins it is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you and you shall afflict yourselves it is a statute forever and the priest who is appointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly and this shall be a statute forever for you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Moses did as the Lord commanded. Well, as Americans, we're good and familiar with the 4th of July. That is our day of independence in which we celebrate Independence Day. If you were to show up in America without knowing our story, and uh, observe us, all of a sudden uh, uh, raid the local fireworks stores, fireworks everywhere, and at least in South Carolina, it's worse, I don't know, maybe it's better or worse than anywhere I've lived, but they keep going, and into the night, and some of the fireworks hit my house, that's happened before. And maybe they go on for a few days. 4th of July, it was very familiar to us. December 25th, that's the the day within our culture we've marked to celebrate the incarnation of of Jesus. It's Christmas. 9-11 is obvious enough, a very different kind of date. Easter is frustrating to me because it keeps moving around. I forget how it works. I think it has something to do with the moon. Uh, But in any case, isn't that our holiday? I've thought before, we ought to get together on this one and fix it, and just fix it to the calendar somewhere. In planning for church, uh, in the church calendar, even the preaching calendar, I've always got to look up where it falls, somewhere in a whole span of about four to six weeks in a given year. Well, Israel had this day. This most important day that came around every year, this last section here starting in verse 29 is a kind of a summary. This whole chapter is a little difficult to follow. I had to get out different highlighters and and follow the different offerings through as they were announced and then re-mentioned and then picked up and then concluded. And this last section here is a kind of a summary of the whole chapter, but you get the sense of the importance of the day we're talking about here. Verse 29, and it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves. They shall fast, that is, from food. Shall do no work, native or stranger, it's a day of atonement. A statute for you, that's mentioned three times here. This is a very important day. We call it the day of atonement. Your Bible may even have a little header there that says the day of atonement. You may remember the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Uh, the the, the two on the wings roughly mirror one another in some themes and length. The two just set in, Exodus and Numbers, mirror one another in particular themes. And right in the middle of this package of five books, which is the foundation for the whole Bible, you have the book of Leviticus. It's in the middle on purpose. And right in the middle of Leviticus, you have chapter 16. That is this chapter right here. And as we go through the rest of our series, it's not that we're repeating the same material, but the author has put this book together in such a way that the material to follow will echo and complement the material on the opposite side of the book. Well, here we are in chapter 16 today. And right in the middle of chapter 16, well, of course, we've got two goats. Two goats I was talking with uh, Timothy, our intern, right before the service, and he said that, um, I'll get into why we call uh, the one of the goats the scapegoat, it's debatable, I'll, I'll get into that just a bit later, but he said, well, it better be called the scapegoat, because I have a a bible who uh, has goats hairy goat skin leather on it, and every time I hold that bible i 'm reminded of the scapegoat i don 't know if anyone else here has a hairy Bible to remind them of the the scapegoat, but you can ask Timothy about his so there's a lot of there's a lot that follows from this chapter there are for as complicated a, a mechanism as it is, um, there are themes which are familiar that whole idea of scapegoat is just a transliteration it's a, it's a translation of the ideas that make up the word that is azazel translated here not translated but transliterated that's actually how it may have sounded azazel on the page that's where we get the whole idea of a scapegoat i look at this this chapter and for as much as i was looking forward to it i found this one of the hardest to outline and to make to make seem simple i almost look at a watch and you have these really clean movements of the hands, simple enough. And you turn the watch over and you've got all these moving parts. And if you're new to watchmaking, I'm, I'm not even new to watchmaking, but I just know there's a lot of stuff going on back there and under the hood. And you look under, you look at a watch in the back when it's open and there's a lot of moving parts if it's, if it's uh, the right kind of movement. And if you're familiar with watchmaking and how the gears work and how these things work, you can watch little videos that show you basically watches like this all work about the same way. You may be able to pick out what's happening. Looking into this chapter feels a little bit like that to me. And yet as we think about where we've been so far in Leviticus, we're, much, we're in a much better place to track with what's happening. We've explored the different kinds of offerings, the burnt offering and the sin offering, which we'll review as we go. We've got the priest offering offerings for himself and for the people. We have the, the holy place, this, this most holy section, this inner sanctum called the sanctuary. And just outside of it, we've got the outer sanctum, this little less holy, but holy place. And then out of that, you have the courtyard, the rest of the, 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 the tabernacle camp there. The high priest could go into the most holy place and the priests could go into the holy place and and the people of Israel could go into that courtyard area. And on the page here, you'll read about the sanctuary and the tent and the place where the altar is. Well, those are those three three divisions. We got a little picture of, uh, of the tabernacle as you might have approached it here on the graphic for us. This would have all been second nature to the Israelites. I was at a concert this last week, an orchestra, and a, a friend who's a pianist, Deanna, and Michael had a concert this week. And uh, I, was, I was preparing to go, and I was texting one of you in our, our church here, hey, what am I supposed to wear to this thing? It's been a long time. Um, how do I get there again? Uh, then I, I got in, and we sat down. or there was There was standing, and there was sitting, and there was clapping, and there was listening, and there was all kinds of very natural movements for that kind of a setting. Uh, some details that are natural to 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 that setting. But then but then you think of all the details going on before you uh, the sheets of music and the rehearsal that went into that evening. Uh, the different instruments and the orchestration, the, the composition, the conducting, uh, the private life, the years and years and years so in a way, what we're looking at here in chapter 16 is the culmination of all kinds of work in different directions. And we've done a bit of it so that the Lord has given us some, some insight. Nevertheless, nevertheless, this feels a little bit more like watching a rehearsal than it does watching the listening to the final product, if you feel me, or at least it's felt that way to me this week. So we've got an awfully important day on our hands. We know what important days are, and this here is a most important day in the life of Israel. So let's give it some time and let's concentrate and do the work of trying to see what is here and how this chapter, how the gears all work together. Let's begin at the start of the day, verses 1 through 14. Think of often our Important days have symbols that go with them. So, 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 December 24th has a Christmas tree. I could have looked it up. I forget where that comes from. But we all know what it represents. We've even had little decorations around here, and if, if the tree makes a shape of a triangle, I can't get Christmas out of my head. But then, of course, there's the, the manger, and that, that's a little closer to the heart of the matter. Uh, For Easter, you have the Easter bunny. Again, I didn't look it up. I think that's probably farther away from uh, the actual meaning of things. But then you have an empty tomb, and that's a little bit closer. Sometimes the symbols are meaningless and silly or strange, and sometimes they're very significant. Well, this is a chapter that's filled with very significant symbols. You think that to have gone through this or to have watched this would have been an experience, not just a paragraph in the Bibles. And so it helps if we turn on our imaginations and try to visualize what we're reading. So I'm going to help us do this as we, as we walk through it. We begin here at the start of the day. And first things first, the beginning of this day and the early set of instructions appears to be pressing on us a very clear impression that God himself is holy, holier than we may have thought having walked in this morning. We get some indications of this emphasis. Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses after the day after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near to the Lord and died. So back in chapter 10, right after the priesthood was established, the sons of Aaron walk into the, walk into the tent without proper protocols or instruction. With some strange fire, it said, and the Lord strikes them dead. And now everyone's on notice. This is, We are not joking around here. More instructions to come. And all the instructions we've gotten since then have come on that very day. And this here the lord spoke to moses after the death of the two sons this appears to be given these instructions on that very same very same day so there is a real heightened sense of the the seriousness that is involved in being in the presence of god because we're sinners and because he is he is holy you think of in genesis chapter 3 when adam and eve ate of the fruit and they were expelled from the garden for eating fruit well it's because they disobeyed the Lord, and they didn't love Him and treasure Him, but trusted themselves and treasured this piece of fruit. In so doing, they said, "God isn't good, and He's not worthy, and we've got this." And so they were they were banished, and, and likewise, but in a different way, Nadab and Abihu were struck dead. And we we're reminded that sin doesn't, death doesn't live within the presence, the presence of God. This all happens on the same same day. The clothing indicates the holiness of God too. Did you notice what the priest has to wear? Verse four, he shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have a linen undergarment on his body and a linen sash around his waist and linen turban. These are the holy garments. Now, these are different garments than we're used to seeing on the priest. So remember, when the priesthood was consecrated, they had these elaborate Clothing, regal, royal clothing, an elaborate hat, a breast piece, jewels, uh, this sash. Uh, The garments that the priest would have worn would have been blue, this really rare dye. It indicates regal and royal authority. And this was in that way, although the priest was representing us to God. Remember, the names of the tribes of Israel are on his gear. Now, in this way, with this particular gear, the priest was representing God to us. The people look at the priest and they see the glory, a reflection of the glory and the beauty of the God whom the priest represents. Well, in this case, on this particular day of the year, when the high priest, only one of them, goes into the most holy place, he doesn't dress as elaborately or more elaborately, no, he dresses down. He dresses down. These are humble clothes. Lest anyone looking on think that it is on account of our elaborate external expressions of holiness that get us in with God. No, this meeting with God is entirely on God's terms and entirely because of the grace of God. And even as you watch the priest now change and go in to meet with God, oh, he's not a whole lot different than us. He meets with God as a mere man by the grace of God who has invited him in. These holy garments were set apart. They were holy garments. But they did not communicate the same thing as the other gear that the priest would wear on other on other days. You no, know, some of us, maybe, nat- in our in our natural way of thinking, might think that we have to come to church in the very best gear (laughs) to be acceptable to God or look around the room and wish that other people wore better gear for God, wore better clothes for God. And uh, we should certainly be covered and not be distracting, but that corrects us a bit, doesn't it? It really is a human way of thinking that God is correcting here. No, to meet with God, we come humbly. We don't come ostentatiously. We don't come making a show. It's okay to dress up for Easter, but let's not dress up for Easter for the wrong reasons. I think that it's a wrong connection to make, that God deserves our best and therefore he, des- he deserves us to dress the best on Sunday. I don't see anything like that in the Bible. If anything, you get, you get moments like this. Here's the high priest going to meet with God in a very humble and vanilla way. Boring clothes. And so there is no uniform for church around here. So the occasion highlights the holiness of God. The clothing puts the emphasis upon God in the terms on which we meet him, not anything we bring or wear. And then there's this matter of the cloud. Did you catch that? So this cloud, look at verse 12 through 13. Verse 12, and he shall take the censer full of clothes, full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord. Now notice here, back in chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu brought strange fire. There's almost a contrast here. They should have waited for instructions. They wouldn't have gone in in the first place and they wouldn't have gone in with strange fire. Here, coals of fire from the altar before the Lord. And two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside, inside the veil. This is the most holy section. The hot spot of God's presence. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord. It, why? In order that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony. So that he does not die. So this is interesting. There's this cloud of incense that he's supposed to... Produce within this especially inner place? Isn't he going in to be with and to see God? Well, yes and no. He, we, this is a human representing us to go into the most holy place. And yet, even this most holy person on this most holy day, obeying God's holy commands, wearing the holy garments, is to be shielded by a cloud Between him and the hot spot of the glory of God. If you're driving, fog or a cloud is usually dangerous because you can't see where you're going. In this inner sanctum, this sanctuary section of this tent, where God's holiness was the hottest, it would be dangerous... Not to have this fog or this cloud. He is being shielded from the very closeness of the presence of God. Now, an Israelite reading this, and if we were working through the Pentateuch, these first five books, we may make this connection ourselves, but I'll do it for us. Clouds have appeared in other places. So at Mount Sinai, Sinai where the law was given, God rescued his people from Egyptian slavery and he brought them to this mountain that they might serve him and he might covenant with them. Oh, it was covered in cloud and shrouded in darkness so that the people could not see the very presence of the glory of God. And even Moses was able to go up into the cloud where God spoke to him from the cloud. So one priest representative can go up. But even there, Moses longed to see the glory of God. He knew he was made for the glory of God. The closer he got almost like fire drawn to it. And yet like fire, it's dangerous. For Moses was a sinner. So God would not let him see his glory. That he would let him see the afterglow of the glory off of his back. And even that would make Moses' face shine so that he had to cover his face with a veil. Lest the people who were sinners have exposure to the glory of God left over on his face. From seeing the afterglow of the glory on the mountain. And die. And so that's the same thing that's happening here. The Lord is providing a a cloud in this especially inner place, not unlike the cloud that was at the top of the mountain. And consider this, the the curtains, as you would have gone into this especially inner place, this sanctuary it's called there, the curtains would have had embroidery on them, cherubim, these flying angel creatures. The same cherubim that would have guarded the way back to the, the Garden of Eden This tabernacle doesn't, is not detached from the deeper story of the Bible to this point. Eden was on the top of a mountain with rivers flowing from Eden. There was no cloud up there, for we could be in the presence of God without any hindrance. But afterward, we're sent out and there is a gate back in that is guarded by cherubim. We meet the Lord at the Mount Sinai, and there is a cloud covering the presence of God that no human will be able to get close to the hot spot of his presence. And there are layers of access, and the people are the farthest away, and Moses, the priest in that moment, is the closest up. And then the tabernacle has its layers of access. The future tabernacle, the super tabernacle, the temple will be on a mountain, And in the new creation, it's described as a temple from which water is flowing. So you see this, this tabernacle, this tent is like a little model of heaven. The center of which is the hottest presence of the glory of God. Shrouded in a cloud like the mountain with layers of access. And as Adam was in close, and as Moses has gone up, so now the high priest can go in on our behalf. So that's what's going on with the cloud here. May cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. That mercy seat, as though God's seat, this little ark of a, of a covenant, it's called, that would be there, it represents God's home on earth. Home on earth. The holiest man with the holiest garb on the holiest day cannot look on the holiness of God. That's how holy God is. And holiness isn't just about not doing things. Sometimes we define it that way. No, God and His holiness. Fire is the image that's given to us, and it is a great image, isn't it? It's attractive, and it draws us, and it warms us, and it gives life like the sun. And yet, it can destroy us in a moment because we are not fit for the presence of fire. And so, spiritually, God and His holiness is life to His people. And yet, we cannot get so close because we are not spiritually fit for His presence which is why we have the rest of the chapter. The point of the chapter is not the holiness of God. Praise God. The point of the chapter is the mercy of God. And so we move from the start of the day or some instructions being laid out. We've we've looked at some of them with an emphasis on the holiness of God. And now we move to the high point of the day, starting in verse 15 through 22. And here we have... Two goats, two goats. So let's watch them. The first goat, where does the first goat go? Verse 15, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil. Okay, so here's the goat. It's going to go all the way inside to the most holy place. That's where the goat is. And there's blood there. Or to put blood, the priest is to put blood on all kinds of things. Verse 16, he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and their transgressions and sins. He shall do it for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in their uncleanness. And after he makes atonement for the holy place, until he comes out, he's made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly. He shall go out to the altar then, this is that third layer, That is before the Lord and make atonement for it. How is that done? Well, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar. These are the the corners of the altar in that courtyard area. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times, that's completeness, and cleanse it and consecrate it from uncleanness of the people of Israel. So this goat is killed. And this goat's blood is taken into the most inner place. And there, this goat's blood, blood which represents life, cleanses that most inner place from death. You think, it was on this very day that the instructions were given that Nadab and Abihu fell over dead in this place. So not only did they, did they de- desecrate the, the place with their sin, but also they defiled it with their dead bodies, remember? I mean, what, what better picture of death and symbol of the, the corruption of this age is there than, than these two priests who presumed on the Lord in that place and made it unclean? So in the immediate context, this is to cleanse that place from that sin and those bodies in that time. But it's also in this way A pattern for the continual cleansing that the place of God's presence would need. If God is going to set up a tent and live in our neighborhood, dying and sinful as we are, there's going to need to be continual cleansing of his place. And then there's cleansing of the priest. He had his own sin offering. There's cleansing of the people, cleansing of the place. You'll notice there's a movement from the holy place, that inner place, out to the the tent area, and then out to the the altar, outside, just outside the tent. Everything is getting detergent of the blood of this goat on this day. Now you think, what did the tent do? How do you atone for a place? Well, remember that the, the killing of this animal, a sin offering, is two things. It is, one, a punishment for the sins that we've committed. The animal dies in our stead, and his blood represents that. But his blood is also a purification for the stain of sin. And so, to be with God, you and I need more than death in our place, but we need cleansing, and we need a holy place, even. They needed a holy, holy place. Well, let's watch the second goat now. Verse 20 brings us to a climax of the chapter. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, there's that movement from inward outward, he shall present the live goat. Okay, so now this one's a live goat. And Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel. And all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat. And send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man and in his readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area. And he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. He puts both hands on the goat. That's new. For these other sacrifices throughout the book, it's been one hand. This here is a clear, not just an identification with the animal, but a transfer of specific sins from the priest, representing the people, a transfer of those sins to the head of the animal. That is different than the other sacrifices. It's not clear that's what's going on with previous sacrifices. Oh, but with this one, this now is the second goat. The sins are transferred from the people, through the priest, onto the head of the goat. Two hands. And he puts his hands on there and he confesses the sins of the people. Oh God, we confess before you, I confess before you and lay on the head of this goat all of our sins in this past year, he might have said. All of the thoughts that we have thought and the deeds that we have done and the words that we have said our sins against you our sins against one another this is a comprehensive confession of sin notice the quantity of sin all iniquities all their transgressions all their sins well that's exactly what we need we need an answer not just for some sin but for all of our sin. Notice the quality of the transfer here. All of the iniquities of the people and of their transgressions and of all their sins. This word transgressions, it's used about short of 90 times in the Old Testament. It's used just twice in Leviticus, right here, in two of these verses. Transgressions. And you'll remember earlier in Leviticus, there there were sin offerings and confessions of sin, and you'd often hear of this unintentional or inadvertent sins. Well, in this case, it may well be that this is a point of contrast. What about the really heinous, high-handed sins committed by the people of God in that year? Well, they are dealt with right here on this day of atonement, and they have to wait for that day to be dealt with. He puts them on the head of the goat and he sends that goat out to the wilderness. Azazel. Where does this goat go? The first one went in to the tent, to the tent all the way to the inner place. The second goat goes in the opposite direction. The second goat goes out. Now it says to Azazel and I'd indicated this earlier. It's not exactly clear what that is. So the translators for my Bible just basically spelled it out for us. Transliterated it. We're just saying roughly what it may have sounded like. There's some different guesses. Some I think are closer than others. It could have been that this is a treacherous place where you go to die. Send them all the way to Azazel. Or the animal will take our sins and die out there in the wilderness. It could be a reference to demons or, or to Satan as a way of saying, send the sins back where they came from, away from God. It seems unlikely that is the case. Just a chapter from here, we'll have a command against sacrificing to demons. It may not mean that, even if that's sort of what it, it means. If you've heard of the language of scapegoat, that comes from this. Azazel, the goat that goes. It's a new word. This is the goat, not that goes into the temple, the tabernacle. This is the goat that goes out with our sin. The escape goat. He doesn't exactly escape, but you get the idea. This is the goat that's going out and with our sins. I think that's probably it. The others may well be true. But again, it's just a guess. Azazel. Still, we know what's happening. This goat is taking our sins and he's going away with them, and the goat is never coming back. Out into the wilderness if the the sanctuary, that inner part, is the closest to God's presence and outside of that you have the tent and then you have the altar and the courtyard, the wilderness is the farthest you get from the presence of God. One goat goes all the way in to represent us and to cleanse the place of God's presence. The other goat takes our sins on himself and goes all the way out as far away as you can get. And this is exactly what's happening on the cross. You can see why when we look at the cross and we have the the layered and detailed story that leads up to it, all of the things that are going on on the cross. For on the cross, the Lord Jesus is shedding his blood for us. He himself, the very presence of God, tabernacling with us on earth. Cleansing the heavenly holy of holies for us by his blood, by his own blood as a priest who does not have to offer sacrifices for himself. And at the very same time as he is doing what that first goat did, he's doing what the second goat did, bearing our sins on himself and taking them outside the camp where he was crucified. Azazel, the scapegoat, Jesus, our scapegoat. We move on now to the end of the day. The end of the day, starting in verse 23. You have this interesting paragraph here where there's a burnt offering for the priest and then the burnt offering for the the people. What are we doing with another offering at this point? Aren't all the sins dealt with? Wasn't that the point of the goat and the goat is more needed to deal with sin? Well, remember the point of the burnt offering wasn't to take sin away, but to offer up to God a whole life given to him, devoted to him. So like like Noah, after the flood, all sin has been dealt with, And punishment given and God's wrath propitiated. And yet Noah offers a burnt offering on that mountain. And Abraham offers the burnt offering on Mount Moriah. And Moses will offer a burnt offering. And here we have another burnt offering. And after sin has been dealt with. And so when I say the end of the day, I mean it in a few senses. The end as in it's the end of the process of the day of atonement. But it's also the goal of the day. For the goal of forgiveness, and that is what that sin offering is that we just watched. That sin offering of two goats, it's called one sin offering. It's a sin offering of two goats. It's got a couple dimensions now. The goal of that sin offering was the forgiveness of sins. Remember that from the earlier chapters. And he will be forgiven. In this case, forgiven of all of their sins. But the goal of God in saving us is not merely to take our sins away and forgive us, but fellowship with him, that we would serve him and worship him alone. And so here, after sin is dealt with, we have the burnt offerings for the priest and for the people doing two things. One, through the offering, a whole life is given up to God on their behalf. And it is also teaching the people of God's goal in forgiving them, which sets us up for the second half of the book. For in the second half of the book now, we will have instructions on holy living, how to live well together, how to honor God in our lives. And it'll get into all kinds of details about life in service to God. But even right here, we have a hint as to where it goes. For he is not done when we are forgiven, for he wants us, all of us. And after the day of atonement, Israel would celebrate a feast. He wants our fellowship. And so we were made for it. And another thing it indicates here is that not only do we need a sacrifice to take our sins away, but we need a sacrifice to offer up perfect righteousness on our behalf. And the burnt offering is that perfect whole life offering in obedience in obedience to God. But of course, there's a problem with the whole system. And some of you have said, I'm glad we don't have to do all of this. Well, for a lot of reasons, including it, it didn't exactly work. In the first place, we're talking about animals here and not humans. So this should be obvious enough. God makes us, and in the garden, before he makes the wife for Adam, he Parades the animals in front of him, and Adam intuits, these are not like me. None of these are a fit for me. Well, none of these animals are a fit substitute for us either. And the other thing about them is that it's temporary, not permanent. This only lasted one year, and the sins will begin to accumulate and to stain and to pollute the sanctuary over the course of the year. And then you'd need to do this purge. That's what the Day of Atonement is. It's a purge. It's like Drano down the drain. All right, the sink's filling up a little bit. It's going down a little bit slower and a little bit slower and a little bit slower. It's time to keep the kids away, pour that Drano in there and get out of the room, and come back in a few hours. And this is cleaning the pipes. It's like dethatching your lawn. If you have Bermuda lawn, I'm just doing that right now. You mow the lawn and the grass lays down and it lays down again. And about once a year, you need to scalp your lawn and throw all of it, as I do, over the back fence. Well, this is all of that old grass, all of that old dead material, all of that sin being gathered up, bagged up, and hauled off to the back, never to be seen again. Praise God, He provided this for His people, but it was only a foretaste of where He was going with it. This was only temporary. They're animals, not humans. It's temporary, not eternal, impermanent. Well, in addition to that, this is not exactly the kind of fellowship that we had with God in the garden that we know that he desires and pursues and that we were made for. So thank God a better day has come. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. We've taken some passages through passages and passes again to the book of Hebrews. And I want to read this material to to you. Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse, well, start in verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. See the description here? For a tent was prepared, the first section in which there was a lamp stand and the table and the bread of presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail, but which we've read in detail. These preparations have thus been made. The the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. There's something going on here. You see, he's, he's preaching Leviticus. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered up that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, for they began sinning in the next hour, but deal only with food and drink and various washings. Regulations for the body imposed until when? Until the time of Reformation. Verse 11 But when Christ appeared, As the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not the one made by hands we've been reading about, that is, not this creation, the one representing this creation down here, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, come on, but by means of his own blood, thus securing what kind? An eternal redemption, all the better. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, how much will he purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? i in verse 23 now, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things you see why we have the sky up here and the stars representing the heavens in the graphic and the and the tent here it's a copy of the heavenly things To be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with hands, which are the copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest enters into the holy places every year with blood, not his own. But for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as you keep reading this precious book of Hebrews, a sermon on Leviticus and the whole Bible's story, from that very passage in Leviticus we've spent our morning in, read through the cross, friends, we have two things to do. With great confidence to draw near to God. With a clear conscience. Draw near to him daily in prayer. Draw near to him in the fellowship with the saints on the Lord's day. And do so not with the garb on that would, of your good works. But the garb of Jesus' righteous offering. Draw near to him with confidence. You are accepted into the most holy place. But second... Don't just have confidence to go in to where he is, but with confidence and with courage, go out to where he suffered. For Jesus suffered outside the camp for you and for me. And because of this great work of his, we can go there and suffer until he comes with him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that we can speak to you with the words of the 103rd Psalm, that you work righteousness and justice and make known your ways to us, that you are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that you will not chide nor keep your anger forever. And Father, you do not deal with us according to our sins, and you do not repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your steadfast love toward those of us who fear you. As far as the east is from the west, so far do you remove our transgressions from us because of Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.